Hey everyone, I want to thank you so much for tuning in and bringing your emotional optimism to your world every single day. That is what means the world to me. On today's episode, I'm speaking to my good friend, Dahlia Felda. She was part of the award-winning Procter & Gamble work for always Run Like a Girl, which won many, many can awards and was downloaded a zillion times. But most of all, what's important about Dahlia is she's got chutzpah. She is all about bringing your heart to your work while keeping your compassionate self alive. Please tune in. I can't wait to hear what you think about this. And thank you again. You all rock and you mean the world to me. Um, But I'm so happy to have you here. Oh, I'm so excited. (laughs) This is so great. It's been like, it's been a long time coming uh, for sure. So, um, so thank you for being with me. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a huge honor and a pleasure. I've been following you and I think we're kind of kindled sisters with the same mission. So it's just really exciting to be here. I, I totally, totally agree. I totally agree. Would you introduce yourself, please? Oh, uh, okay. Um, so I'm Dalia Feldheim. I'm an ex-CMO in the corporate world. And today I call myself Chief Magnificent Officer. So uh, I'm an organizational psychologist and an adjunct professor. It was your title that caught me when I first <laughs> met you, for sure, because we both have very unique titles that probably suit our personality, which uh, which I love. So um, I would love to just get started. There's so much I want to talk about. Your TED Talk, the book, the pivot that you made, obviously. But I'd love to just get started in in a little bit of your origin story. I mean, you're Israeli, you're in Singapore today, you're going back to Israel. How, how did, who were you at five years old? Where were you, who were you? Um, where was I at five years old? So I'm originally from Israel. I always joke that I'm made in England, born in Israel, because literally my mom, my parents are British and she came over pregnant. And my brother was born in England. And I was the first, uh, it's called Saba, the first uh, Israeli in our family. Uh, and one of the characteristics of Israelis is something called chutzpah, which I'm sure you know. <laughs> um, chutzpah is, I try to translate, it's an interesting combination of kind of cheekiness and just ingenuity a little bit. So at five years old, you know, every time we used to get um, you know, a fine or whatever. I was a little five-year-old with chutzpah going after the policeman and saying, but sir, you don't understand and get us out of it. So that's, <laughs> that's where I was for five years. Um, but very soon I joined, I became a gymnast. I became a competitive gymnast. Um, okay. five, uh, and okay. that was a lot of my childhood. Really? And what was your, what was your, uh, your favorite thing to do as a gymnast? Well, by it, the way. it was um, artistic gymnastics, so ribbon, uh, balls. Wow. You know, yeah. I can tell you, I loved it. I used to then. I went to the national team, and um, I really was hoping that my daughters, one of the two, will start doing rhythmic gymnastics. <laughs> well, I think it builds character like like nothing else. I mean, I remember as a six, seven, eight year old, just the stamina of trying again and again. Um, so I did it until I was around 13 at a competitive level. And I guess that kind of created, I'm competitive against myself. So it's mm-hmm. all about being the best that I can be. I don't mm-hmm. care about 
know the rest. It's just, did I do the best that I can do? And then at 13, uh, I actually dropped from third place to fourth, meaning I'm not on the podium. And the three that were before me were just amazing. They were my best friends. And then I kind of realized that, you know, the time that I'm spending, I'm missing out on all these social activities. And then I became a coach. So at 14, I became a coach and actually got my girls to national team. And that's where I fell in love with teaching, coaching from a very young age. So that's how it. interesting. That's incredible. I had no idea. At 14, you become a coach of something that you have so much passion for and drive. And it's amazing. Of course, I know the word chutzpah. I mean, we're all, I, I grew up with that same word as well. And I, I think I, uh, I can associate chutzpah with the cheekiness, with the fire. There's, yeah. uh, you know, um, uh, it's resourcefulness. I was always shocked when I later worked abroad that, you know, they would, people always said, and I, when people said, oh, you have chutzpah, and I'm like, me, I'm so polite, I'm British. So in Israel, I'm considered extremely kind of British in my manners. But when I started working abroad, people kind of, wow, you're so resourceful. It's it's this kind of, you know, a little bit um, thinking outside of the bo- box, you know, they close the door on you, you come in through the window. It's, right. it's this thing that is actually, I mean, and now working in Asia, I see I see it more as an advantage, but it just needs to be the politeness that goes with it. Understood, understood. It, I would call it street smarts in a way. Exactly. Yeah, started, our kids were educated abroad um, and we're going back to Israel. So we just told them, you have to learn street smarts. Right. Otherwise, you would be eaten alive. Um, yeah. So we're doing them a course in street smart, which is really interesting. I, when are you really? That's incredible. That is so incredible. You should like, you know, give them no money and no bus, no bus ticket and have them do some kind of scavenger hunt and see where they, you know, where they land. I'll give you, I mean, my son, we were talking about it and then he, our gym membership, I canceled it when COVID came Mm -hmm. and then uh, apparently I didn't cancel him and he wanted to renew. And the guy said, well, you need to pay 500 for not properly canceling before. Like that's an example. They need you. Okay. To increase the membership. Let's see what you can do and get, you know, we shouldn't be paying 500 for the time we weren't there and we canceled because of COVID. So he was like, but mom, I'm not good at that. I'm like, you want to renew? You're only getting the money for the renewal. And he did it. So. That's amazing. You know, it, it leads me to, to immediately talk about courage and, and then really go into your career because it, from, from what I know, it sounds like you took many courageous leaps also in a fortune one company, quite frankly. So would you, you know, how did you get you know, coaching? Obviously that's in your blood, being a competitor, that's in your blood, family is in your blood. How did you get into this world of marketing? Like how did, who mm. came knocking on your door? Literally. Um, so, you know, at 18, I went into the army. Uh, it is compulsory in Israel. And I became a platoon commander. So again, the coaching, right. I call it my crash course in leadership. Mm-hmm. So, you know, at 19, I had 50 soldiers, life and death environment. It really kind of sharpens all your skills. And again, you know, that's part of the reason we're going back. Our kids decided they want to do the Israeli national service. But, you know, after the army I studied, I went traveling around the world which is the reason I fell in love with Asia. That's why I'm here. We spent quite a lot of time here. 
And then I uh, studied psychology and business. And I was sure that I'm going into the world of psychology. I actually had a scholarship for studying psychology in the US, uh, Noam Chomsky, you know, aphasia and, and linguistic and all of that. And then um, I was doing a project for my, uh, so I did business and psychology. I did a project for the business and the guys were like, what, you're not coming to, you know, P&G is coming to recruit. The university was the first time ever that they came and like, Dalia, you have to come. So I went and I really loved what I heard that, you know, you're in the, you know, driver's seat as a marketeer. It's really understanding the cycle of the consumer. It's serving them. It's making their life better. And they were telling all the stories of PNG and how they really help drive, you know, life easier from, from Tampax to pure uh, water, et cetera. And I was like, wow, this is really uh, impactful. I can really make an impact from a young age. So I applied and I got in. I remember my husband was studying in Haifa uh, in the Technion in the Polytechnic. And I came back and I'm like, I got accepted. He's like, oh, yay. Where is it? Geneva. It's like, great skiing. Let's go. So <laughs> I think my, my lucky card is having a partner that's uh, crazier than I am, more, you know, braver than I am, I would say as well. Uh, that was really kind of not only very supportive, but we were all about, you know, experience, experiencing. So we packed up our bags. We went to Geneva, what was supposed to be two years. Um, and then sadly, things uh, became challenging in Israel. So I was told, well, make a life in Geneva. We're not opening a subsidiary because I was recruited to go back and open the subsidiary. They said, make a life here in Geneva. And my husband just, you know, moved and started studying French to get into the university there to continue his studies and two years and he managed and really he went from zero to a hundred in French. And just as we were making a life in Geneva, they came back and they said, okay, Dalia, we're open in Israel. We need you to go back. And I'm like, my boss just promoted me super fast. I couldn't do it. Not for my, you know, I couldn't do it to my boss or to my husband. Uh, and that's when I started the adventure. I mean, I didn't think that I would be 23 years outside of Israel, but uh, yeah, we spent uh, amazing 10 years in Geneva, uh, five years, and then uh, we moved to Moscow. That was also pretty brave. Mm -hmm. I mean, the story there is we were having a dinner with my boss and, um, you know, my husband kind of, uh, we talked about uh, uh, Moscow. Actually, my husband started working in a company all XPNG and mm -hmm. the guys tried to convince us to move to Moscow because it was the up and coming, you know, really advent, you know, adventurous uh, place to be uh, from a career perspective, etc. So I told my boss, you know, hey, I'm open uh, for a move. And then a week later, he called me and he said, OK, we have a job for you, the brand manager of Femcare in Moscow, but you need to move tomorrow. Uh, so literally I had a one-year-old and a two-year-old oh my gosh and we moved to Moscow and I can tell you that was an amazing experience because suddenly you know from barely making it on one salary and one student kind of a you know suddenly we were supported with a nanny and a helper and and that kind of really I always say I remember hearing a lady uh Deben Retta give a talk and she said you know think about help not as a you know, spend, but as an investment. Mm -hmm. And you know, that's really enabled me to kind of balance the mom that I want to be. Uh, plus it was 2004 and my boss, Daniela Riccardi, when I had the baby, I came to her and I said, I don't think I can come back. I don't think I can be the mom that I want to be. And, you know, I had a one-year-old and 
And she's like, well, why don't you test working from home? And that didn't exist at all. Wow. Oh my gosh. 2004, I, you know, basically piloted working from home every Friday. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you, I worked from home for the whole career in PNG. So I think it was 12 years after that. And that was my number one coping strategy as a mom. I mean, I've just, I just saw Adam Grant today and he, you know, was sharing the data on the productivity at least one, once a day or twice, uh, once a week, sorry, or twice a week, increasing productivity. I really felt it. I was like Fridays zoned in. I didn't even get up to eat. I was just zoom doing all my reading, all my analysis uh, and my team, because I wasn't there, just kind of figured things out. And, you know, it really empowered them to, to make decisions. So I remember I wrote a recommendation for head of HR, you know, work from home, flexible work arrangement, and we rolled it out across the company. And it was a wow. huge, huge enabler. I mean, PNG was chosen, you know, best company for, for working months for many years. And I think that that flexibility and autonomy was a big enabler of that. Yeah, that's amazing. Again, a first mover in many ways. You yeah. Know, the, we, you and I have so many crossovers. So I was a, um, a nationally ranked uh, amateur tennis player for a very long time uh, in my teens and then uh, got burned out and then went to teach at the USCA for a bit. Um, so, yeah, these are all old, yeah, old tennis rackets, not mine, but I just love collect, collect. They, they make me feel warm, you know, um, but the, the natural coaching, the natural leadership and natural coaching me arose pretty early. And then lo and behold, you know, you've worked, you had an entire career at P&G. I worked at uh, Publicist London where we worked on P&G. So that's that other crossover. The thing I, just to go to P&G for a moment. I had worked on so many brands by that time when I got there and, and so many uh, CPG or um, B2B, doesn't matter. But the thing I loved about working on P&G brands was the ethos, at least what I took away, which is something you just shared about making a person's life easier. And the quote they always used to say was peace of mind. Are we giving peace of mind to the consumer? And I worked on uh, oral care and then a little bit of femcare. And I love that phrase because it makes so much sense to me. Are we making their life easier? Are, are they able to breathe easier? Do they not have to no longer think about what to feed for dinner, how to take care of their family, whatever it is, how to wash their how to wash their body, all of those things. And it's very that I don't, I don't know where that came from within that type of corporation because it is a giant. Yeah, and you know I can tell you, this was something that I realized when I look back. So I was total seventeen years in PNG, right? Mm-hmm. Geneva ten, Moscow three, and then I moved to Singapore in two thousand and fifteen for three years. And when I look back, I call them my years of flow because I was a hundred percent on purpose. I realized early on, I, I can tell you the story actually, um, you know, what my purpose was, right? So um, it was six months into the, into the business and we, our femcare business, I, so I was in charge of femcare in Israel and a key competitor was about to attack, okay, to enter the market cortex, very uh, amicable uh, competitor. And, you know, what do you do? You defend, you protect, you know, your, your, your turf and strengthen your basis. And where we were losing is among 18-year-olds. And where are 18-year-old girls in the army? So I decided to create um, 
you know, an army sampling. Okay. And uh, in order to persuade the army, we gave them a gift of like a beautiful wash bag. That was very insightful because you go to the washroom and all your tampons and pads and all gets wet. So it was very nice to compartmentalize, etc. So we sold it to the army. The army, you know, uh, loved it. And then two days before we were about to launch, I decided I wanted to write a personal letter for the girls. And I literally sat there in the office and I was a platoon commander. I remembered what it felt like, you know, going on the bus. I'm going to do it with my daughter in a few weeks. I'll start tearing up, but literally saying goodbye to your parents you know, going into this kind of challenge all on your own. So I wrote them kind of a note, both talking about hiding in the army and why we created this gift, but also, you know, the pride that they must feel serving as equal, et cetera. And, you know, I just thought, you know, I just kind of wrote about my own experience, et cetera. And it was more as inspiration for the agency, right? But the next morning my boss came in and it's like, Dalia, what, you know, what were you doing? I was literally sleeping in the office because I just felt like, <laughs> Uh, he's like what the hell what are you doing and he's like and I'm like no I'm just writing this inspiration for the agency and he's like can I read it so he read it and he started tearing and he's like Dahlia don't give it to the agency I want you to sign your real name because we didn't used to do that right mm-hmm. exclusive Amanda just as is we're shipping it as is wow two weeks after we launched the campaign you know when we started we were inundated our service line with calls from girls and moms just saying thank you for being there in such an insightful moment. And I can wow. tell you, I really can tear up because yeah. that's when I realized I'm not in the business of selling pads. I'm right. really in the business of women empowerment. Mm-hmm. And I think what's amazing about, you know, P&G is that, you know, every employee you know, felt that they, because the company is huge and all the brands and our, our company purpose is, you know, changing life, mm-hmm. improving life. And, you know, everyone could connect from their point. So for me, it was about women empowerment. And so I was able to do that and then work in Russia on a campaign, be the star you are, which is all around scholarships. And then, you know, the famous, always like right. a girl uh, in 2014, But my favorite is an India story. I can tell you about it later. But basically, you know, bringing your purpose to work every day was a core component of working at P&G, both as a marketing director and the campaigns. You know, I knew that I loved ideas and people. So I did it as a marketing director, you know, in my campaigns, but also as a team builder. Uh, everyone is a trainer. So everyone is in learning and development. So I became a training junkie. I just trained any single course that happened. And, you know, one of them was a women supporting women that was quite transformational for the day Um, and time. I was on staff on that and I could see the value of women empowerment and what we can do when we kind of bring women together and empower them. And so, yeah, I think there's something really incredible with, you know, the focus and purpose and, you know, uh, both Jim Stengel and then Paul Pullman, made it kind of their life career to take this on to other companies and kind of prove that it's not a choice between purpose and profit. It's right. really those companies that, you know, invest in, 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 in their purpose outperform the market. I think it's 12 times. So yeah, it's been, a, and that's a big piece. And that's my first P and kind of my model, which kind of find your own purpose, what really lights you up. 
and find a way. I mean, Simon Sinek calls it the golden circle. I talk about the golden link, which is link your personal purpose to the company purpose and make sure you bring it to life every day. And I can tell you, I mean, I see what you do. I mean, it's, it's golden, uh, golden success, right? Because you're, you know, a passionate coach and, 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 and speaker, and you do that within kind of your, your work. So that's amazing. That's kind of what I would love every person in the world to be able to do. I agree. I love that. I love that story so much. And I, I actually didn't know, I don't know a lot of the innards of PNG, but I, I love hearing that a, you were given the autonomy to write that letter, to send that letter in the packages that is incredible. And that doesn't, you don't think of that happening at such large corporations where I think most people think of employees as numbers. Mm. But in fact, you, not only were you a human, you were a, you were a user of that product too. Yeah. Which I think, I think there's a, a really incredible glue there when you, you had your own purpose, you were doing something for women who you had been in their shoes prior. So you yeah. knew all about, you know, the insight was, was you lived it already. Yeah. And you and brought you that know, to life. And you know, it's funny. Some, some people tell me, oh, Dahlia, but you can only find a purpose in something that's kind of emotionally connected. So I worked on Pampers and yes, right. as a mom, connect and all of that. But uh, my test was actually later on. And, uh, you know, when I worked on washing machines, so this was mm -hmm. for the second company. And how do you find passion in a washing machine? But it was still about, you know, I really challenged my team. What are we passionate about? So we're not passionate about the washing machine, but every one of us is passionate about their favorite clothes, their mm -hmm. lucky shirt. Right. And so right. we created a campaign on, you know, it, it was called fashion care. And it's all about, you know, we take care of your, you know, we don't just wash, we take care of the clothes. So you always, you know, look your best, right. And make right. a best, a great impression. So I keep on saying, and I give a lot of lectures on purpose-led brand building, because I do believe that when you connect your own purpose and the brand has a purpose mm -hmm. that connects to consumer's life, mm -hmm. that is when you really kind of, you know, have the one plus one equals three. Right. And that, that it, uh, adds to this flow, this period of flow that you had. And, and obviously you're carrying this through your entire life and giving it to many, 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 you know, thousands of people. Um, I want to, I want to talk about women's empowerment, but I want to go back to who you were as a girl. If you could, you know, obviously you were a massive part of the always like a girl campaign, which starts with girls. And as a five-year-old, I, I started this podcast asking who you were at five and then, you know, who you became at six, seven, eight, 13, 14 onwards. Where did that insight come from in terms of creating the always like a girl, which is world renowned. Everyone knows of it. It's you watch it and you just want to get up and cheer. You, you are that girl. Inside. Yeah. I mean, that's I, what you did. You brought that to life with every, well, everyone. Yeah. Well, first, I, I don't like to take credit myself. This is the agency. I'll mm -hmm. tell you how it happened. You know, Leo yeah. Barnett, all yeah. the credit coming up is this idea. But just going back to, um, you know, me and the impact there. So I think, you know, um, yeah. So at five, I was this feisty little girl. I never felt that doing things like a girl was an insult. So I was a competitive mm -hmm. gymnast. I said a platoon commander, life was right. open. 
You know, I, I was very academically, you know, I, I loved studying, but I was always also very social and, you know, I loved coaching and training and I was also a youth movement uh, instructor, etc. cetera. Um, and I was actually quite a tomboy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I was playing sports and rough and whatever. Um, and it's only in the army, I became a platoon commander of girls. And I cried my eyes out because I wanted to be a platoon commander of boys, right? <laughs> um, but something amazing happened there. I mean, me with my, my direct reports, if you like, you know, six direct reports and then 50 in the team. And um, I guess, well, it's, it's a story. It didn't come to me for a long time. But I remember during the army, there, there was one case of, so the army is a melting point. Pot, right and and there was this one girl that came from a really rough background really rough and she did something really naughty uh, having a boyfriend in the tent uh, to stay overnight during the weekend and she was caught and I the commander told me you need to you know where uh, basically uh, she went to court and I we, mm. we had to send her home basically mm. And I'm like, wait, before we do that, I would like to have a session with her. And I was a sergeant then, not the uh, commander. So the sergeant job is right, you know, to discipline. Mm. Uh, I remember what happened there. So it was five hours of kind of discipline. But throughout, it was like, I was just telling her, you have this amazing opportunity to even up your, you know, forget about where you came from and just even up and, and bring your full self. and after two hours, this tough lady broke down into tears. Look, I'm, I can't believe I'm remembering. Sorry. She broke down into tears. And after four hours, you know, of at the end, I said, listen, I need to send you home, but I'm going to fight for you. But you need to commit to me that you are going to take the responsibility over your life. And the next morning I went to the, like the cafeteria and usually only your platoon stands and salutes you as a kind of a sergeant. Okay. She got the whole cafeteria to stand out up and salute. And since then, she was the number one soldier in my platoon. Wow. wow. And I forgot about this story and she continued and she became a successful businesswoman. And, you know, I realized the immense power that you know storytelling and care and you know it's just really incredible and it had it you know throughout throughout the career i guess you know this whole women empowerment um really played a huge role um so going back to the always like a girl campaign i can really track so that was kind of a region and then that was the army sampling story and then was another interesting case i'll i'll tell you i think you'll appreciate that one so we wanted to market to the Orthodox community. So these are women that don't watch TV, no way can you send a sample to the house, right? Um, and I just got married and I went to what's called the mikveh, which is the purifying bath um, that you go through before your wedding. And I said, wow, mikveh, right? It's only women, very safe, very secure. Why don't I do mikveh sampling? So we got in touch of the head of the mikveh globally, uh, you know, in the country, and we agreed to do the mikveh sampling. Well, the first time I came and I did, you know, like we do store checks, I did checks on how it's working, et cetera. 
And what happened is that these ladies, I think they were 100 there, they just started asking me questions. So how did you get to this job? What are you doing today? And it ended up a mini talk, okay? Wow, wow. A year later, listen to this. A year later, I went back to the same place. Now, I forgot that I was there before. I walk in and this lady walks up to me and she says, Mazel tov. And I'm like, she's like, I see you got married. And she said, I just wanted to tell you that your talk made such an impact on me that I decided to delay my wedding, go back to school. And, you know, I convinced my husband, you know, to marry only after I finished studying and kind of working wow. So again, I realize yeah. I'm not in the business of selling pads. I'm yeah. in the business of women empowerment. So with that insight, we continued, you know, developing that femcare is not about pads and protection. It's about the life benefit of women mm-hmm. empowerment. And the last story that leads to always like a girl. Yeah, I have chills. Have, You've given me you chills. Stop me because I, I, have, I have chills <laughs> everywhere. I have chills. Oh, no, wonder you, no wonder you did a TED talk. I mean, this is incredible. No, you know, this is a story that I, I didn't tell in TED. And, you know, when I was working the TED and uh, I keep on saying it's, uh, I had huge fights with my kind of a uh, guide because he kept on cutting my stories. And I'm like, but that's my favorite story. And we ended up taking it out of the, of the TED, but I'll just share with you now, because I think it's a, it really brings to life what I'm talking about. Um, so in 2014, I moved to I moved to uh, Singapore in 2011, and a year later, I went and did my first in-home visits in India. Mm. And it has a huge impact on me because I just admire the women of India. I mean, traveling through the outskirts of Mumbai, I saw this young girl reading a book, but she didn't have light, electricity, so she was reading to the light of passing cars. Okay, that's for me, the woman of India, right? So the next morning, and you know, we went to do in-home visits, right? Mm-hmm. So we go in to visit the daughter and her mom, and we go and we kind of uh, see the young girls sitting on the floor. And her mom comes in with drinks and she serves us, and then she serves the girl on the floor. Okay. And then I noticed that it was like metal plates and cups. Um, we continue talking and uh, the girl is sitting on the floor and then... Um, then aunts and uncles come in. And for a moment, I saw this really embarrassed look on the girl's face as mm. her greeted her. And we left our house and I turned to my agency partner and I'm like, what was that all about? And she's like, well, Dalia, she's on her period. And mm. I'm like, so what? Yeah. And then she told me, you know, we have these crazy myths and we believe that women on their period, they're impure. So we don't allow them to go into the kitchen or sleep with us. And they actually sleep on the floor. I can tell you that night I didn't sleep. Wow. The next wow. morning I called the agency. I'm like, I couldn't sleep. I just had this sad look. I mean, it's already so hard for girls and they really feel left behind during the period. They don't go to school during the period because they don't use pads. They use cloth or crazy, you know, yeah. other, right? Um, and then they're humiliated like that to be, to feel dirty. And she's like, yeah, you know, I, I researched it a little bit. It had good origin. We wanted to let the girls rest during the period. But today, girls do feel behind. Um, and she told me, and hey, uh, we have such crazy mess. One of our myths that we don't, you're not allowed to touch pickles during your period because you'll make them go rotten. Okay. Wow. Whoa. And I told her, listen, I don't know how 
because this is cultural, but we have to do something about it. So my passion for people and creativity and, you know, my strengths on ideas and what the world needed was, you know, we need to refute these crazy myths. So in 2014, we launched our campaign and uh, we decided to use humor and we called it, I dared, I touched the pickle. <laughs> and that became, you know, the most viral ad of the year. It was oh, like wow. the TED Talks, etc. So that, and we got the Sheryl Sandberg Glass Ceiling Award that year, etc. So with wow. all that, we yeah. had this global meeting for always. And we, and a colleague of mine did amazing work in Africa on kind of no girl left behind. And we said, we need to change the global equity. So we sat together, we changed the global equity. We're not about pads where, you know, we believe no girl should feel left behind. And with that, we went to Leo Barnett. And the story is that actually my, uh, my president, Melanie Healy, she was the one, her daughter was going to play basketball and got her period. And her mom said, you go out there and you play like a girl. And she was telling us that and the agency loved it. And I can tell you, I still remember the first moment when they shared with us the work. We were four global marketing directors. I started crying. This was everything I worked for for 15 years. And yeah, I'm so proud of of that work. I mean, the impact it had every time I talk about it, you know, it's like, um, so yeah, so as a brand, you can use your voice to make such an impact. And I'm super proud to have been part of that. That's incredible. I have such chills, these stories. (laughs) You know, that's the thing when you are a marketer and you do these in-home visits and you touch, first of all, you see how other people live and the empathy that comes out of your heart. It's just, it's enormous. It, It overflows. And yet you can't affect how that, mom or or household was treating that girl literally that's their world you're not allowed to cross that boundary but you can affect in such a larger way in terms of bringing you said humor but just bringing the yeah normalizing it with humor or with yeah with emotion and i just i love how you just went full circle with the just who you were again as a five-year-old to even the fire that you have now talking about it and and just the ability that you know I I guess the, the question I have is it's, it's, I almost think I can answer the question for you but where have you gotten your inspiration who you know who inspires you who inspired you you know it sounds like women it sounds like girls it sounds like the person I meet I think uh, you mentioned the word empathy and I just, you know, and I know that's a huge passion area. And, you know, people think that empathy is about making our employees feel good and all these soft factors. And that is, we know, right? Mm -hmm. P&G used to say, take care of your people and the business takes care of itself, right? So empathy is immensely important for employee engagement and passion and all of that. But what a lot of people miss is that empathy is critical for innovation because how can you innovate if you don't understand, if you don't listen between the lines, you know, to to the unmet needs that consumers are stating and how you can connect your own product and benefits into those life unmet needs. So 
I'm a huge advocate of empathy at the workplace all around. So right. I just, right. you know, yeah. the just hearing consumers and how can I make their life better? And then it's my clients or my, you know, coaching clients now or my companies. It's like, really, if I have something that can make your life better, you know, I want to share it. That's, That's it. Kind of- it's the sharing, which I think is linked to coaching. Yeah. And, and, and wanting to make someone's life better, you know, leaving, we all have this incredible gift every single day, should we use to use it, which is to leave our thumbprint or our heart print on another person every day, every hour of every day, in fact. You know, you know something funny as you asked the question, it's actually when it was taken from me, I reached the lowest point of my career that inspired me the most to do this shift. Because growing up in PNG, I just assumed empathy and, and people development is part of what it means to be a leader, which it is. But sadly, it's not as common everywhere. And you know that kind of leads me to what I ended up kind of sharing in TED, which was, when after 17 years, I left PNG. I mean, people ask me, why did you leave? Honestly, I mean, I, I thought I would be the one closing the light. I love the culture. Uh, but sadly, they kind of moved my role to Geneva back. Mm-hmm. We were in Singapore. My husband opened his high tech. I've always been huge on dual career. And I you know, felt I need to put my money where my mouth is in a kind of uh, dual career. And so it was right for us to stay in Geneva, in Singapore, sorry. So I decided to leave and I took a role as CMO of Asia for another company. And I can tell you, it's a great company with a great culture. And I love the global CEO and the global CMO. So I was CMO Asia, everything. It looked like a dream job. And two months into the job, I got a new boss. And, you know, I wish him all the best and all of that. But the learnings from what not to do. And when you don't care about your people, that was profound. I was, I, I was hit by a ton of bricks, you know, suddenly all my strengths were not only not appreciated, but laughed on. Okay. So I was too motherly. I was too energetic. I was even too positive. So my nickname was Miss Kumbaya. Right. You know, <laughs> I volunteered to do a program on positive psychology and my boss goes, thank you very much, Miss Kumbaya. Wow. You know, so, wow. yeah. And I tell the story, I won't repeat now the story and Ted mm-hmm. on the tissue box when I was diminished for being passionate. Okay. And how my first boss saw tears as a sign of passion and this last boss saw it as a weakness and it's very interesting. I studied, it's like, you know, when I left, I had to understand that. And it's very interesting that there's a lot of learnings there. Um, some call it the dance of death bullying. Okay. Where what he needed and what I needed was the same appreciation. So I grew up kind of a rock star and I needed his appreciation and he was determined. He told me, I'm not going to tell you what you're good at. I'm only going to focus on what you need to fix. And you know, and, and I'll tell you as a marketer, he said, there's no art in marketing. It's only science. You just haven't got it yet. Right. So he was a six Sigma for marketing. So it was all about the science of marketing. And I just couldn't believe it. And I'm like, and here I made the biggest mistake 
that I see a lot of women making when we are in a toxic environment, okay? So I thought that empathy trumps everything, right? So I tried to change him, to coach him. And, you know, six months into my role, I met the headhunter that put me in the job. And I don't want to kind of share too many details, but uh, she told me, Dalia, you're the only one that can change him. And I kind of suddenly, her intentions were good, but I suddenly felt this responsibility, right? And I realized you can't change someone that doesn't want to change. And there's cases where empathy, you know, is not the right strategy. Mm -hmm. Um, And when it's really toxic, there's only one strategy that works and that's zero tolerance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and and I, I... yeah, I just spent three years there. So first year kind of fighting. Second year I was flighting, if you like, you know, mm-hmm. being obedient. I, yeah. if I could be described as obedient, but trying to, to change, to be kind of, you know, um, to fix everything that he thought needed fixing. And I ended up falling sick because yeah, literally I left my passion and, you know, my superpowers. So you know, what happened is I realized the importance of, you know, I, I literally made the decision and actually how did I make that was also interesting. I went to a PG alumni event mm-hmm. and I walked in and the guy speaking was my ex-boss and he was talking about servant leadership. And I literally sat in my chair and I was like, this is what it's supposed to be. Yeah, It's not me that is crazy because I was the crazy one in this organization because everyone mirrors a leader both a positive one and a mm-hmm. negative one so the whole environment become i mean decent people but really becoming very very judgment and toxic to each other and then i realized whoa i'm in a toxic environment and when i was able to name that this is bullying this is toxic that's when i was able to step aside and say no more i became fearful you know i would write an email and think hours about what I'm going to say, right? Because I knew I would be bullied on it or, you know, laughed at or something. Um, So I came back from that uh, conference and I'm like, zero fear. I'm I'm dropping the fear. I'm going to leave at the end of the year, but I'm not going to leave before I leave my mark. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he wanted science and I was just, I'll bring my heart and my art back to the workplace. And, you know, my first passion is people. So I created such an amazing tribe, really. That's the reason I stayed. Amazing tribe of, of people with a good kind of continuity plan, succession plan. And we also created a campaign that was very science-driven, but also very creative. And that one on Effie, and that's when I said, okay, I got my mojo pack. I can do now. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, and yeah. that's that's a pain. And sometimes, you know, I'm I don't wish pain on anyone ever, but sometimes it's that pain that really clarified to me what my purpose is. Well, it, and, it, well yeah. Sorry, go go ahead. No, no go ahead. I mean, it, when you, I mean, you were in an abusive relationship, and you had gone so far from your center. Yeah. So to your point you know, once, once that dawns on you and you see who you are, you know, you're a shadow of yourself. And if you're, if you know inside in that pilot, like that's not who I am, then that does give you the wings again. That gives you the, I think the, the fight in you to 
not only come back to who you are, but come back stronger and wiser because you know what hell is like. You know what that's like. Yeah. And I think that's the worst when we lose ourselves, right? Yeah. yeah. And we, um, you know, I often see smart, beautiful, successful women, you know, find themselves in abusive relationships. Mm-hmm. And I, I interviewed them for my thesis and different kind of uh, and one of them was like, you know, she 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 really made it clear. I was determined to coach him out of it. Mm-hmm. I knew I could change him, right? So, you know, sometimes, and Muhammad Ali says, like, float like a butterfly, sting like mm-hmm. a bee, right? right and right, that's right. what I say sometimes. You know, when you're in an abusive relationship, this is where, you know, the more you build resilience, the more bullying you get. This mm-hmm. is really about stinging like a bee. Yeah. It's about boundaries. Sorry, sir, you will not talk to me like that and you know and that's when I you know that gave me the courage I was shaking before telling the story for the first time right what if he sees it you know right and I decided it has nothing to do you know and he's on retirement and I wish him all the best but there was an important important because so many women and when I studied it I was shocked one in two employees experience some element of abuse at the workplace either directly or even seeing it impacts them from Mm -hmm. a psychological perspective it's horrendous horrendous so that is where and especially in asia sadly we have such respect to leaders that people do not speak up Mm -hmm. and that's where you know my mission was and that's why i went to speak about it on ted is to get more women and men to stand up. And this, my surprise was that, um, you know, and I think I shared with, with you that, yes, I got all these amazing calls from women that were inspired to make a change. And yes, actually 60% of the, the guys that, the people that commented were actually men, mm-hmm. you know, for the sake of their wife, their children, their female employees. But I have one guy, actually two, but one guy called me very close after and he said, Dali, I just wanted to say thank you. I realize that I'm a reformed asshole. Oof, yeah. I'll talk to him. Yeah, yeah, and he's amazing. And he shifted his career and he, he now works in the world of coaching. He's an asshole eradicator. Beautiful. Okay? Beautiful. <laughs> so there is hope. Yes, and yes. Yeah, and I think, you know, often bullies, I mean, they have such low awareness. Um. That part of it is just, and I heard a great story from Adam Grant on kind of how to deal. And that's what I went and researched. Was there anything I could have done, right? Right, right. And can you, can you coach yourself out of a toxic environment? And my answer was yes and no. Yes, you can build resilience. And that's what I trained today. Okay. Focus on your purpose, people, you know, positivity. That's what I was doing there that helped me survive. But in order to really kind of thrive, it's about going back to your strengths. Mm-hmm. It's only when I went back to my strength that I was able to thrive in this environment. And you'll only be able to do that when you kind of really put boundaries. This is what I'm going to do. This is what I believe yeah. in. You yeah. know, be yourself. Yeah. Um, all. Right. And by the way, some people just need to leave. They need to yeah. leave the situation and then they can go heal and do whatever because it breaks, it, it toxic. And abusive environments and people can break you. Yeah, they you know, can. Their own insecurities are almost stronger than our 
our force, our force for good. It's a, it's a crazy dynamic. It's crazy. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and, and interesting is that the more successful you are, often you fall harder because of the cognitive dissonance. Like mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm not a victim. Oh, yeah. The word victim is like, but that's the issue. You know, only when I, you know, after two years, I, when I came back from this uh, servant leader, I actually wrote to my boss. I was talking with him, my first boss, mm-hmm. okay, my, my friend and mentor. And I wrote all my experiences. Okay, he asked me, right? Because he heard, I spoke with him a little bit and he said, just write it all down. And I sent it to him and I sent it to my husband. And, and my boss called me. It's like, I am ready to punch someone. Yeah. This is bullying. And he was the first one that gave it a name. Wow. And that really, and I, and I studied it later, naming yeah. emotion and naming a situation is really important because it does this. Suddenly I was able to detach mm-hmm. me, head of the women empowerment for PNG, you know, the women's network, me a victim, but yes, I was a frog in boiling water. That's exactly and, right. Yeah. And that's great, by the way, that kind of gave me chills later on when I interviewed for my thesis, I interviewed you know, uh, 10 people who went through abuse in some way or form, and they all use this phrase, a, a frog in boiling water. Wow. I've never heard of it. That was the first time I heard of it, but it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. yeah. So it's like, it's, 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 you know, um, it's not happening to me. I can fix it. I can coach him. You're not realizing that you normalize this craziness. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, another story for another time, but I mean, I was in abusive relationships just in my personal life and it's a, uh, it does a number on you. You really, you really become someone that you don't know, you don't recognize until, until someone points it out or names it for you, or all of a sudden you snap too and say. It was your parents, right? You were sharing once. What, what helped uh, you? Snap? My, my brother and my cousin really uh, helped me. They, they named it for me. My brother said to me, uh, you're living, I was living in, in Florida with someone, and uh, he said, you're living in a beautiful white prison. Mm. And it was him just saying, that, him identifying, he had come to visit me, him yeah. identifying, it all looks great, but it's a prison. And the word prison and me don't go hand in hand. Mm. And I, I probably a couple of days later is when I said, that's it. I'm done. I'm leaving. And look yeah. at you now. Yeah. Yeah. Look at me. The, so uh, the other thing that, you know, it is trauma. It is trauma. And I underestimated. So I consider myself, you know, a platoon commander, confident. Yeah. yeah. And I underestimate how much trauma I had in my body. And what helped me heal is talking about it, but also helping others, yeah. you know, out of their trauma and finding what we call now post-traumatic growth, right? Where we can actually grow. So it was actually this hardship, this hardship that made me realize that it's not all rosy out there. And the we are in the midst of a major mental health crisis. We have the numbers around that. And I know it doesn't have to be that way. It was actually, I was given a lecture. So I became an adjunct professor later on for happiness at the workplace. And I was given a lecture and I was helping them. I was doing a session on find your purpose. And one of the students said, oh, uh, prof, thank you so much. Now I know what my purpose is. 
but I know I need to be a corporate slave for a few years and then I'll do it. Oh, off the language and the belief. Right. And I'm like, no way. No way. No, how? That's where you and I share the mission, right? Yeah. Yeah. Humanize. We know it's going to be different. We know that people perform at peak when they are nourished, when they are cared for. We know that empathy is a muscle you can train even if you don't have. Yes. So so that's basically my obsession. I love it. I love it. Just in close, I mean, we could talk forever and I'm so glad we're going to have clubhouses because we're going to do this, which is, makes me so happy. And I love your journey. Uh, even the downs because the, 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 the ups are great. They're fantastic. And they're so full of life, but the downs are as painful as they are. That's where the learning starts, you know? Um, in closing, I would love to know what the phrase emotional optimism means to you, if it means anything. Ah, oh, I love, I saw that on your, and I love it. And it reminds me of a phrase I use, which is emotional bravery, mm-hmm. which is around accepting all emotions mm. because, uh, you know, it's those negative emotions and that we, when we reject, we become sick basically. And it's giving ourselves the permission to be human. Mm-hmm. So for me, emotional optimism is even when you're sad, staying with it. Even yeah. when you have negative, let it flow through you. Yes. So that you make room, you know, for, uh, for the positive emotions. Golda Meir said, those who don't weep with, with all their heart, don't laugh with all their heart either. Mm. Talk about a leader right there. Oh, my, oh my gosh. Thank you so much. It's so good to see you. I love you so much. And uh, I feel I like you. I know, I, I know, I know. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Looking uh, forward to continuing this clubhouse. We have so much in common and I just love what you're doing. Thank you. And vice versa. And we'll link to the TED here. We'll talk about the book next time for sure. Uh, we'll link to all of your uh, your good stuff out there. Excellent. Thank Love you. you. Thank you. Love you.